Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. John chapter 4, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. And the word of the Lord reads this way. And when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealing with Samaritans. This is the life-giving word of the Lord. Oliver Wendell Holmes once wrote, Most people are willing to take the Sermon of the Mount as a flag to sail under, but few use it as a rudder by which to steer. In this series, we've been talking about a radically different life, which is exactly what he calls his followers to. A radically different life. You see, not slightly different, not a little bit different, but dramatically different completely different, of a different nature altogether. A life that is so different that people around you would sit up and take notice because of the life that you live. A life that is so different that it would seem that you're even a different person and people wouldn't recognize you except that you look the same. A life so different that it shines into the darkness of this world. A light, like a beacon of hope. A light that draws the world's attention. A life so different that it has the ability to act as a preservative in a world that's rotting and decaying. A life that is so different that it gives itself new life. It brings new life to relationships. It brings new life to churches. It brings new life to families. New life to whole communities, even to nations. A life that is so different that it's defined not simply by living up to a standard, but living beyond that standard. A radically different life. That's what Jesus is calling you to. That's what he's calling us all to. Now, I'm not talking about a life where you have to leave your country, right, and go on a mission somewhere to go save souls, though it might encompass that. I'm not talking about a life where you have to sell everything you own and give it all the poor and live a life as an ascetic, you know, where you are poor the rest of your life, giving away everything that you have, though it could include that. I'm not talking about a life where you spend all of your time studying the Word of God and going to school so you can be going into full-time vocational ministry yourself, though it could include that. I'm talking about a radically different life that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. A life that Jesus talks about in the book of Matthew, chapters 5-7, through where Jesus, the King of all things, is declaring for all who will listen what the kingdom life is supposed to be for those who are in His kingdom. 
How are we supposed to live as followers of Christ in the kingdom? Is what Jesus is talking about. It's a radically different life. You see, we began this series talking about the truth that, that Christ loves you the way that you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. Christ welcomes you to come to him just as you are. Just as you are. But he will not, he will not leave you that way. Coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ changes you. It's a radical transformation. You were once spiritually dead, and now you have been made spiritually alive. That's why we say things like being born again. And if you think about it, being born physically into the world is a radical transformation in your state. In one moment, you're in the comfort and the warmth of your mother's womb. The next, you're thrust out into the world. Once you were dependent on your your mother, now you're dependent in a completely different way. Your life is radically changed when you're born, and it's the same with being born again. As you begin to live this new life in Christ, as you begin to live indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you your life will change. You will be transformed into someone new, someone who begins to, to resemble Christ himself. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, he describes what life is like for those who experience that, what life is for those who actually follow him. He describes this radically different life. And as we talked about in the first week of this series, when you look at what Jesus is saying in that text, you realize it's impossible. It is impossible. If what Jesus is describing for us in the Sermon on the Mount is a list of rules to follow, if, 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 if what he's talking about is a list of rules for us to abide by, we are going to fail. But we can't, because we can't live that kind of life on our own. It's impossible. I mean, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus says, you are blessed if you're persecuted and reviled. I, don't, I wouldn't feel blessed. Jesus says you're blessed when people say evil things about you. He also says that if you're angry with someone, it's the same as killing them. He says if you look at someone lustfully, it's the same as committing adultery. He even says if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. He says if someone slaps you on, on the cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your stuff, don't stop them, but actually give them more stuff. He even goes so far and say, don't worry about your life and what you need to survive. If this is a list of rules to live by, then we have failed and we will continue to fail because this is impossible. It's impossible to live the way Jesus is describing if we're going to live on our own. But that's not what Jesus means. Jesus didn't come to give you another set of rules to live by. He didn't give you another to-do list that you have to keep. He didn't come to change your behavior. He came to change your heart. He didn't come to make you externally obedient to him. He, made, he came to make you internally new again. You see, the kind of radically different life that Jesus is calling all of us to is only possible, is only possible by a radical transformation of our hearts by grace through faith in Christ. This is a work that's done by God himself. The only way that you're going to live the life that God wants you to live is not by following rules, but by having your heart of stone removed and and a heart of flesh put in you, which is exactly what God promises to do for those who put their trust and their faith in Him. 
For those who put their faith in Christ, it is a radical transformation of our hearts that enables us to live the life that Jesus is calling to. It requires a radical transformation of who we are. right? And it also requires a radical dependence upon Christ to transform our lives into this image. We're not going to live this kind of life by trying to do it by ourselves, by trying to be obedient to a set of rules. We can't do it. It's impossible, I promise you. We can't. We can only live this life, this radically different life, by turning to Jesus and clinging on to Him and holding on to Him and depending on Him alone. Only Christ can conform us into the people that, that can live this way. Only Jesus is going to give us the ability to live the life that shines this way. <clears throat> and so in the very first week of this series, we talked about this radical transformation of our hearts that God brings to the believer. And the second week, we talked about this radical dependence upon Jesus to grow and to change us into people who can live this kind of life. Like I said, it's not the rules. It's about clinging to Jesus. Now, this week, we're going to change gears a little bit. And I want to talk about a radically different love. You see, the life of Jesus, the one that he describes in the Sermon on the Mount, foundationally requires a radical, a radically different kind of love. I mean, I want you to think about this. How are you going to ever refrain from retaliating against someone who does you wrong? How are you going to ever pray for the people that persecute you and be good to those who mistreat you? How are you going to ever put away your anger that wells up inside of you when those things frustrate you? You know what I'm talking about. How are you going to stay married when, when everything seems lost and impossible? How are you going to live out this standard of purity that Jesus talks about in the, in the Sermon on the Mount? How are you going to give to other people, to those in need, without actually needing yourself recognition of your sacrifice? How are you going to, how are you going to live this life that you're being called to live? What's going to make this possible for you? Is it white-knuckled determination? Is it your willpower? Is it your sheer determination to do it? No. What's going to make this possible is a radically different kind of love. That is, that is how we live this life, with a radically different love. It's not a natural love. It doesn't come from within us. It is a supernatural love. It comes from God. It begins with God. See, this love always must begin with a love for God, a love that God himself puts in our hearts. When he took our heart of stone out and put a heart of flesh in us, he gave his love to us and put it in us. A deep, abiding love for God, a love for Christ that runs so deep within our new hearts that it's hard to tell where his love ends and where our love begins. And this love grows within us. It grows into a love that is so overwhelming that it pushes us against God and it holds us there. It draws us into his presence. It draws us closer to him. And as this love grows, it begins to well up into a, into a new kind of love. It wells up in our new hearts and it begins to overflow in us, out into the world around us, affecting those that we come in contact with. This love that God has given us. 
And out of this overflow of this love, our lives begin to to visibly change. Our behaviors begin to change. And suddenly, what was impossible for us to do in our own natural strength becomes not only possible, but it becomes a brand new way of life. In fact, Jesus says this radically different kind of love will be the thing that identifies his disciples. You understand that? Jesus said that people will know that you belong to me, that they will know that you're my disciples by this radical, God-given, new heart kind of love. This radically different love that is completely unconditional. A love that is sacrificial. A love that's without hesitation, reservation, or limitation. A love that is so rich and so abundant, it begins to saturate every portion of your life and it changes who you are and then it pours out onto everyone around you. And not just the people you care about, but also the people that you struggle to care about. That's the way that Jesus calls us to live. That's the love that he calls us to. And understand, I want you to hear this, that, that Jesus is not talking simply about us loving this way. This is how Jesus himself loves. This is the very love that that Christ loves with. Jesus loved his neighbor as himself. Jesus loved the disciples with a reckless abandon. And Jesus loved deeply, even his enemies. In fact, today I want to share with you a story that really points, that really paints this picture, That, that really demonstrates what Jesus is talking about. Now, we've been in the book of Matthew for the last couple of weeks uh, looking at the Sermon on the Mount, but today I want to actually take a step out of this text. I want to look at a story in the book of John that I actually believe exemplifies in living color what this radically different love that Jesus is talking about looks like, this radically different love that he calls us to in the Sermon on the Mount. And so turn with me to John chapter 4, and we're going to begin in verse 1. Now, when Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed for Galilee, and he passed through Samaria. Now, let me just give you a little bit of background here. Okay, so this is at a point in the story. It's still very early on in Jesus' ministry, super early. In fact, it's so early that John the Baptist isn't even in prison yet. Because it wasn't very long in Jesus' ministry that that John was arrested and then ultimately was was killed. So this is very early in the the ministry of Jesus. And this text is communicating to us that Jesus' popularity is growing actually very rapidly. In fact, the ministry has outgrown John the Baptist's own ministry. And and John had been calling out the, the nation of Israel to repentance for quite some time. And what you have to understand is a lot of people are actually responding to the call. In fact, Matthew tells us that in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he said, and then Matthew says that Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him and they were, they were baptized by him in the, the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And so John is preaching and he's calling the nation of Israel to repentance and people in huge numbers are showing up to turn their hearts back to God. But now Jesus, he has a following that's actually outgrown John's. And notice what it says, the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, which means 
the religious leaders who were paying attention to John, the ones that were in Jerusalem, those Pharisees, they were beginning to take notice of Jesus and his ministry, which isn't good news. Because these men were very powerful, and they didn't take lightly any challengers to their authority, right? And, and to make it worse, to make matters even worse than that, just a couple of chapters before, it, John records the fact that Jesus, while he was there at the Passover, went into the temple, took a whip, and began to drive out all the money changers and all the businessmen and all the people that were selling stuff in the temple, and he drove them out turning over their tables and running them out with a whip. Right? And people asked him, what authority were you doing this with? And many of the, the leaders in the community didn't like that, didn't appreciate that. And then in chapter 3, Jesus has a conversation with one of the Pharisees himself. He comes to Jesus knowing that Jesus is from God, and Jesus tells him something that makes his head spin. He says, you must be born again, which is not something the Pharisees had heard or believed. In fact, their teachings were completely different. And so Jesus you know, is now attracting a lot of unwanted attention and things are beginning to get a little heated. And so Jesus, after the Passover was over, he leaves Jerusalem and he heads home to the area of Galilee. But I want you to notice what it says, because when you're reading the text, sometimes the littlest details have, such, have the biggest impact. It says he had to pass through Samaria. Now, this, again, this, this text right here, it's a little detail that's so easy for us in our English Bibles to, to overlook, right? But there's a lot of debate about what this one phrase means. Because why? Why did he have to pass through Samaria? I mean, what's the point of him having to? Right? The truth is that there are several ways that you can actually get to Galilee from, from Judea. One of the roads goes by the seacoasts. Another road leads to the, through the region of Perea. And then the other road leads right through the middle of the heart of Samaria. And so technically, Jesus didn't have to pass through um, Samaria. He could have went a different way. Now, now, some of the commentators that I've read will say that Jesus had to pass through Samaria because, because he was in a hurry, right? And, and the road through Samaria was the shortest road possible. But I, I don't buy that. I don't, I don't believe that. The thing is that most Jews, they avoided passing through Samaria. They didn't want to go through Samaria, even if they were in a hurry, because, because there was a great deal of hatred. I mean, centuries of hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. Right? They, they hated each other for centuries. It goes back for centuries. In fact, it all started with the death of King Solomon. King Solomon, um, he died and his son Rehoboam became the king. And he decided that he was going to be even more brutal than, than his dad was, and he was going to actually put more requirements on his people. And so he ended up creating a rebellion that divided the kingdom in two. You had the northern kingdom of Israel that had ten of the tribes, and then you had the southern kingdom of Judea, which included the tribe of Judah. And so what you ended up having was the capital city of Judea was Jerusalem, and the capital city of, of the northern kingdom of Israel was Samaria. And so right from the beginning, you can see hundreds of years before Jesus, there's this tension that begins to build. And to make things even worse is the nation of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians, and they begin to then intermarry with their captors instead of staying pure, you know, become, staying, remaining pure Jews, as, as, as the Scriptures had told them. 
And so they intermarry with their captors and they begin to lose their Jewish identity. And as a result, this nation, right, especially in Samaria, descended into further corruption. It became unclean and they practiced all kinds of false religions, all kinds of abominations. And if that wasn't enough, then those who actually claimed in Samaria to follow the one true God, Yahweh, they refused to worship God at the temple in Jerusalem as they were commanded to by the scriptures. But instead, they built their own temple at Mount Gerizim, right there in Samaria. And they began to develop their own version of the faith. And they didn't acknowledge all the Old Testament scriptures. They only just said the five books of Moses were God's word. Everything else was not, including Joshua and the Proverbs and all the prophets. And so Samaria came to, to represent what was wrong with the entire world. And they were a polluted nation, and they were polluted morally, and polluted religiously, and they were polluted racially. And the Jews were the epitome of everything that was unclean. I mean, the Jews, uh, the, the Samaritans were the epitome of everything unclean. They were an apostate people. And so to say the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other was really a great understatement. They would not even speak to each other. They wouldn't talk to each other. They wouldn't touch each other. They, would, they hated each other. They were enemies to the bone. But here it is. It says Jesus has to pass through Samaria. It says he had to. The, 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 the Greek word here is actually imperative. It's urgent that he went. Now, I don't think that Jesus had to pass through Samaria because he was in a hurry. I believe that he went to, to Samaria because it was the will of the Father, because God the Father had a plan for this trip. And we're actually going to see how that plays out in this story. It says, And so then he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son, Joseph. Jacob's, was, uh, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So here's the picture, right? These guys walk everywhere they went. And from Jerusalem to Galilee was a long trip. I think it's like, like a little over 100 miles. All right? And so, so they're walking everywhere they go. And it's the sixth hour, which means it's about noontime. So which means he's already been walking several hours. And so obviously he's a little bit tired. He's, he's a little, he needs to be refreshed. It's time to have lunch, right? It's, it's time to get something to drink and take a break. And then it says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, this is a story that I have read so many times. I mean, this is one of those stories I've read many times. There's a lot theologically here. It's worth studying over and over again. In fact, this is a text that I've probably preached on and, and talked about a number of times in the past, but there, there is something in this story that's really easy to overlook. Again, there's so many little details that are just easy to miss that speaks to what it means to live as a Christ follower in the kingdom of heaven. And we get a glimpse of that when the woman says this, how is it that you... How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? See, the thing is, is when you read the Bible, sometimes it doesn't really like explain everything in full detail. It just makes a statement, and you're supposed to kind of understand. 
the reality is the question she's asking, she's asking in total shock, right? She's like surprised by this. Almost as like if he starts to speak, she's going to jump because she would never expect for him to talk to her, right? She, would, she, she was completely shocked. And, and, and here's the thing is the differences between their two cultures is evident. Like right now, she sees him and she goes, that's a Jew, right? I mean, now she's never seen him before. And Samaria is a great big area, so she doesn't know everybody. But she knows. I mean, there's a difference in their culture that's so evident that right now she goes, that's a Jew, right? And she's like, you're talking to me? Not like Robert De Niro, you're talking to me, okay? All right? She's like, you're talking to me, right? Jews don't have conversations with Samaritans. You don't talk to Samaritans. We're enemies. So this was really, really strange to her. But notice also what it says. He says, why are you talking to me, a woman? Now, why is that significant? Because this really surprised her, right? Why is that significant? Because in this culture, women were seen as inferior. In this culture, women were second-class citizens. They were like property. They were really of no more value than, than livestock. Right? That was the culture of the time. In fact, one famous Jewish prayer is like, goes like this. It says, thank you, Lord, that I'm not a Samaritan. And thank you, Lord, that I'm not a woman. I mean, seriously, that's the prayer of Jewish men. Women were looked down on. And so no wonder that it surprised her that Jesus was talking to her. <clears throat> she was not only the enemy, but she was also, right, according to the culture at the time, a lowly, worthless woman. But that's not all, because notice the time of day, the time of day. See, she's getting water at the sixth hour, which is about noon, which is strange, because in that, in that culture, women would get up early and they would go to the well and get water. Why? Because you need water to cook with, you need water to wash your hands with, your, your family needs water to bathe with. And so that was like one of the first chores they did. They went and got water, Right? But here she is not getting water in the morning. She's getting water in the noon. She's waiting till noon to get water. Why? Well, the reason was is because, because she's an outcast. Even amongst her own people, she's an outcast. See, she, she, she went to the well when there was nobody else there because she was not welcome among their people. Now, now why was she an outcast? Well, in the conversation with Jesus, he uncovers why. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you, you now have is not your husband. So not only is, is this a Samaritan woman, right? Not only is she to a, a woman which men weren't supposed to talk to. She was also a woman caught in a huge moral failure. I mean, she'd been married five times. Five times, and now she's shacking up with someone else. Even by today's standards, that's pretty excessive, right? Even, even by today's standards, that's, that's scandalous. But here Jesus is talking to this woman. A woman who is a Samaritan, a woman who has been rejected even by her own people because of her sin. 
And Jesus, the perfect, sinless, spotless Jesus, a righteous male Jew, is acknowledging and is talking to this woman who is by all the definitions his enemy. And more than that, he actually takes the time to engage her and to share the hope of salvation with her. In fact, the conversation goes on. Jesus said, give me a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself and his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus has taken the time to talk to his enemy about eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me the water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come to draw water. So he went right over her head, right? He tries to try to tell her about the gospel and it just goes over her head. And Jesus then gets her attention and says, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. So immediately she acknowledges that that Jesus has the power to discern her darkest sin. And notice she wants to change the subject right away. And like, okay, you want to talk about religion? Okay, let's talk about religion. And she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, which is Mount Gerizim. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And we could spend the next couple of weeks talking about the beauty of, of that statement and the fact that God is with us and we don't have to go to a temple to worship God. But that's not the point. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. And he, who he was called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now understand People had been asking Jesus from the very beginning, are you the Messiah? Are, are you the Son of God? Are you, are you the chosen one? Are, are, you the, are, are you the one, right? And, and Jesus was very vague, and he didn't answer their questions directly. But then here he is, talking to a woman, this Samaritan woman of shady character, and he comes right out and he tells her, yes, I am. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you're looking for. And he invites her to believe. That's how Jesus treats his enemies. But the story continues. Just then the disciples came. They marveled at what he was talking about. 
with a, that he was talking with a, a woman, but no one said, who do you seek or why are you talking to her? So have you ever like walked in on a situation where you're like, what in the world's going on here? Like some things just don't look right. So here's Jesus, a man, a Jew, talking to this Samaritan woman. It'd be like, it'd be like walking into a room, you know, seeing people going, what are you doing? Right? What's going on here? Right? So they walk in, you know, they, they see Jesus talking to this woman, but notice none of them have the guts to ask him. They don't say a word. They're like, okay, it's Jesus. We're going to let him do what he does, right? And so the woman left her water and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Then they went out of the town and, and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who has sent me to accomplish his work, which is another you know, set of sermons we can do on, on doing the will of God and how that satisfies our soul. But that's not the point for today. Continue on, it says, do you not say, do you not say that there are yet four months then comes harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white with harvest. You see, Jesus didn't have to come to Samaria because he was in a hurry and this was the shortest way home. He had to come to Samaria to save the lost, even among his enemies. Many Samaritans, it says, from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stays there for two days. Two days. Not just simply, hey, you know, invite me in your heart and believe in me and then I'm gone. Two days he spent there. And many more believed because of his word. Jesus came to Samaria to love on and to bring salvation to the people who were his enemies. And again, I want you to notice, he didn't just say a quick word and leave. Right? He didn't just preach some evangelistic sermon and said, come forward and you know, pray this prayer. And then off he went. He stayed for two days ministering to them, preaching to them, loving on them, making sure that the seed of the word took root in them. A righteous Jew spending quality time with the unrighteous Samaritans. What a beautiful picture of the love that Christ has. What a clear example of the love that Christ calls us to live in His kingdom. He went to the very people that the Jews avoid. He went to the very people that made other people very uncomfortable. He went to the people that other people just ignored and looked past and acted like they didn't even exist. There were centuries, centuries of animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. They grew up hating each other. It wasn't like even optional for them. They grew up this way, hating each other. They were taught to hate each other. They'd rehearsed all their lives, all the reasons why they hate the Samaritans. And the Samaritans rehearsed all their lives why they hate the Jews. But here's Jesus. He crosses the racial lines. He crosses the religious lines. He crosses the cultural lines. 
He crosses the gender lines to reach out to and to love on and to offer salvation to those who were considered his enemies. That is the the example that Jesus leaves for us. We are to step out of our comfort zone and reach out to those that are not like us. We're to reach out to those that we struggle with. We're to reach out to those who make us uncomfortable. We're to reach out to those people that we tend to avoid and love them. And if you struggle with this idea, I understand, but let me bottom line this for you. How did Jesus begin this conversation with her? He said, give me a drink. Now, I want you to hear this because I have missed this. I've read this story so many times. I can almost memorize the first part of it, but I missed this. I happened to be listening to a, to a, um, not a, not a sermon, but a lecture by one of my professors, and he just mentioned it, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. He says, give me a drink. That's how he starts a conversation, to which the woman says, you have nothing to draw the water with. You don't have a bucket, you don't have a, a cup, you don't have a jar. Now, hear this, which means that Jesus is asking to get a drink out of this woman's jar, out of this woman's cup. I want you to think about that. Just let that sink in for a second. The Jews weren't even allowed to go into a Samaritan's house. They weren't even allowed to sit at the same table. They weren't allowed to have a meal together, right? Because they were considered to be so unclean. And Jesus is telling this woman, I'm willing to drink out of your cup. I'm willing to be that close to you. I'm not only willing to acknowledge you as a person, not only am I willing to to, to call you an equal and talk to you, Not only am I willing to relate to you, I'm willing to drink out of the same cup as you. I'm willing to be that close to you. That that is how Jesus treated his enemies. That's how he loved his enemies. A person who could could, could not be more different than him. And he loved them. And he didn't love them with some half-hearted, you know, I'm better than you kind of way. He didn't love them in this, like, I feel sorry for you, you know, because you're beneath me kind of way. Jesus loved in a humble, respectful, intimate sort of way. This is the radical kind of love that Jesus is calling us to. This is the kind of love that you're supposed to live in the kingdom of God. It's the kind of love where you set aside yourself. Where you set aside your cultural issues and baggages. Where you set aside your political perspectives. It's where you set aside your comfort zone. It's the kind of love where you humble yourself and you get eyeball to eyeball with other people and you get on the same level as them. You see... 
hard. And, and hear me, because this message is convicting for me too. But it's hard to love people when you think that you're better than them. It's hard to love other people when you think you're better than them. I want, and if there's anything that you take home from this, I want you to take this home. It's hard to truly love people and identify with them and connect with them when you think that you're above them. You see, it's not love. That's condescension. That's patronizing. That's a dehumanizing pity. You might as well, they might as well just be a puppy. That isn't love. Real love is where you humble yourself to the point that you're willing to meet people right where they are in the mess of their lives. Real love is where you humble yourself. Where you're willing to get closer than what you're comfortable. Where you're willing to touch their hand. Where you're willing to sit close to them. Where you're willing to be associated with them. Real love is metaphorically being willing to drink from the same cup. Now I say metaphorically because I know some of you are panicking, thinking, I'm going to advocate that we start drinking on the same cup, and I'm not, okay? That's gross, all right? <laughs> A lot of you all already had the flu. I don't want it from you. Thank you very much. <laughs> not what I'm saying. What I'm, what I'm saying here is this. Real love is willing to push past our comfort zone to get close to other people. Because that is the kind of love that actually changes lives. That's the kind of love that builds trust. That's the kind of love that builds hope. That's the kind of love that says, you're important to me. That's the kind of love that says, Jesus died for you, and he loves you. And because I love Jesus, I love you too. And that's the radical kind of love that Jesus is calling us all to. And understand, I know. I know this kind of love can be uncomfortable. It can be inconvenient. It can be intimidating. It certainly can be unnerving. But brothers and sisters, you need to hear me. Because it's this kind of love that sent Christ to the cross. It's this kind of love that caused him to endure the beatings and the floggings and having the crown of thorns jammed onto his head. It's this kind of love that caused him to embrace his cross as he carried it with him down the road towards Calvary. It's this kind of love that, 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 that caused him to, to allow the Roman soldiers to drive nine-inch nails into his hands and his feet. It's this kind of love that caused him to pray to his father, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. It's this kind of love that caused him to say to the criminal next to him, Truly I say to you before, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. The first person in paradise with Jesus was not his best friend. It was one that could be considered his enemy, a criminal. What a radical, life-changing, soul-satisfying, and eternity-shaping kind of love. And church, you are called to live a radically different 
life through that radically different love that has been given to you by a radical transformation of your new heart and is made possible by a radical dependence upon Jesus Christ. That kind of love is the fruit that bears witness to your transformation from death to life. It's the fruit of your salvation. It's no wonder that the first characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's no wonder Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all that I have, I deliver my, up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, hopes, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. For us, for prophecies, they will pass away, and for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For what we know in part, for, for we know in part, we prophecy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but now, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. Paul reminds us that even greater than your faith is love. Church, you are being called out by God to love the radically different love in the world. The question you have to ask yourself is, will you Prove your love for Him by heeding that call. And I think this kind of love needs to start right here. Right here in the church family. I know that many of you love each other, but I also know that we struggle to love this way. Because let's just face it, we're all different. We all have different backgrounds. We have different experiences. We have different political views. We have, we have different upbringings. We have different likes, different dislikes. We, some of us are different economically. Some of us are different, very different culturally. We're different in the way that we process our emotions, many of us. We're different in how we deal with conflict. Some people just roll with the punches and some people get really frustrated. We're different in how we show affection. Some of you are huggers. Some of you are handshakers. And some of you are like 
don't touch me. Right? Yeah, knuckle bumpers, right? Some of you have very strong opinions about things that don't matter. Some of you, some of us, are rough around the edges. We are all, every single one of us, different. We are all unique and complex. And sometimes, our differences make us uncomfortable. Sometimes our differences chafe us. Sometimes our differences create friction and frustrate us. I think you've all been there. That's okay. We must never let our differences divide us. Because we are all, every one of us who actually profess faith in the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, those who profess faith in that God are brothers and sisters in Christ, which means we are a family. Jesus was so different from the woman at the well. Completely different. But he refused to allow those differences to be a barrier between his heart and hers. He got down on her level and was willing to drink from her cup. And he loved her with this radically different love. Now, if Jesus can do this, please hear me on this. If Jesus can love this way, if he can do this for his enemies, how much more should we be able to do this for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, which means it's not optional. <laughs> a new commandment I give to you, that you love your Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So welcome to the radically different life. Now go out and love the way Jesus is calling you to love and live the life that Jesus is calling you to live. You are the light of the world. Hear those words. That's what he's talking about. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. The way that you shine, the beacon of hope, the way that you preserve this decaying world is through this radically different love. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray and, and ask that you begin with me. Start with my heart. Because that's what this is. This is a heart issue. And I realize that this kind of love is not, I am not capable of this on my own. And so I lean on you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I cling to you. I embrace you with everything that I have, Lord God. And I beg you to change me and make me this way. Help me to be patient with people that try my patience. Help me to love people at times that make me uncomfortable. Help me to make time for people that at times I think I don't have time for. Help me to love this radically different kind of love. Help me never to put myself on a pedestal. Help me to 
always be looking up to you. Help me to humble myself and be eyeball to eyeball with everyone that I come in contact with. Help me to live this out, Lord. And then create it in us a church culture that does that. Raise up a people in this church who seriously are wanting to walk in your word and will live this out and love others the way that you're calling, Lord God. Let us love each other the way that you love your enemies. Let us love with a reckless abandon. Let us love, Lord God, without hesitation, without reservation or any limitations. Help us, Lord God, to be a people who are visible to everyone around us. That they will say, those people belong to Jesus. Look at the way that they love each other. Help us to be that people, Lord. And help that love to grow and then overflow and pour out into the streets of our community where we share the hope of Christ and people are drawn to it. Not because we're smarter than everybody else. Not because we're great with our words. But they can see, they can see the real love of Christ in our actions and our attitudes and in our words. Father. Use this little church in a way that glorifies your holy name. Help us to go out and rescue the lost. Bring revival to this community through your people and the way that you cause us to love. Change our hearts to the Lord. We love you. Praise you. We give all the glory to you. for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.